Hey, it's Big Joe for your trusted local independent American Standard Heating and Air Conditioning dealer, Absolute Comfort. Chris Wedekin is the owner, and he tells us why many homeowners are giving up their air conditioners for a high-efficiency heat pump. By removing your air conditioner and replacing it with a heat pump, you are not only saving by getting a higher-efficiency air conditioner, the heat pump works in reverse and saves you money in the wintertime as well. See if a heat pump is the right move for you by going to absolutecomfort.org. Absolute Comfort is your trusted local independent American Standard Heating and Air Conditioning dealer. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. This is the Second Amendment, and this is the Gun Guy. Boom, 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 boom. Bang, 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 bang. Boom, 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 boom. Bang, bang, bang. With Guy Ralford on 93 WIPC. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Gun Guy Show here on 93 WIBC. We're glad you're with us. By the way, you can also stream video for the show. As I always say, and most people agree, I not much to look at. But if you uh, want to follow the video, we have a live feed going at, on YouTube. Just go to YouTube, look for 93 WIBC. It'll come right up. And uh, producer Carl, being the incredibly awesome producer that he is, also has uh, the YouTube feed going on WIBC's Facebook page. You go to Facebook and uh, go to 93 WIBC, you'll see it right there as well. I just looked over at producer and he's going, uh, no, maybe I need to put that up there right now. <laughs> so I may have spoken prematurely. Very, very soon, in the next minute or and a half or so, Producer Carl will have it on the Facebook page. That's fantastic. Uh, oh, yeah, we're good. Uh, but in the meantime, we're glad you joined us. We've got a lot to talk about, as we always do. It's a great day in Indiana, man. It was in the 70s. Beautiful day yesterday. Beautiful day today. Finally, finally, I blame the damn groundhog. I'm telling you, somebody needs to take that groundhog out. I am not suggesting violence is a joke. But... But but the ground, damn groundhog predicted six more weeks of winter, and I swear we've had like nine more weeks of winter since that happened. Uh, but finally, man, it was in the 70s yesterday. It's in the 70s today. A ton of motorcycles on the circle downtown. Downtown is hopping. It's Comic-Con. And I'm the first to admit I don't know exactly what Comic-Con is or, or, or what that means. Um, I, ha- I know it generally has to do with uh, comic book uh, characters and, and perhaps comic book based movies, I'm thinking. Um, but man, downtown, it's really entertaining. I, uh, I usually come into the studio an hour or so, maybe 45 minutes before the show. But I got downtown and it was so entertaining to walk around downtown because um, people dress up. I mean, um, you know, we have, we have other conventions uh, where they do the same thing. But man, this afternoon it, it's it's fascinating, and and I'm so out of touch with the comic book or or comic based movie culture. I'm the first to admit I'm an out of touch uh, old guy. But uh, but but man, the the the, the dressed up uh, people downtown dressed up like like characters. And I have no idea who the characters are, but the costumes are fantastic. I mean, it's really entertaining, and you can tell people put a lot of time and energy into makeup and the wigs and the whole thing. It's it's really pretty cool. But in the meantime, you don't uh, you don't dial into the Gun Guy Show uh, on Saturday at five o'clock to hear about Comic Con, and we've got a lot of two way issues uh, to talk about. I want to talk about a very recent Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals decision that came out, and 
I think it was just last week, maybe the week before, I kind of went through how the court system works both at the state level and the federal level. I won't repeat that. But the Fifth Circuit is the federal court of appeals that hears appeals from the federal district courts, which are the trial court, uh, trial level courts, um, in uh, Texas, Louisiana, and Mississippi. And if you go into the district court at the trial level and you lose your case, you can appeal it and it goes up to the Fifth Circuit. And that's just for those uh, d- federal courts in those three states. But the Fifth Circuit uh, issued a very interesting ruling, and this is very consistent with a prediction that I've had uh, since the U.S. Supreme Court issued its ruling in the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin case that changed the test for how you decide as a court, how you decide whether a gun control law is constitutional or unconstitutional under the Second Amendment. And you've heard me talk about this a lot. I won't repeat that whole discussion. But the way the Bruin court changed the game, completely changed the game, said there's no more of this balancing about, well, if there's a compelling state interest, they can infringe the Second Amendment a little bit, or maybe even a moderate amount, if there's this really important state interest, like, oh, say, keeping the public safe. And, of course, every gun control law is based on the false premise and the premise that keeps getting proven wrong and disproven, is a better way to say it, time and time again across the country. The premise that gun control actually keeps anybody safe. We know it doesn't. We know laws don't deter criminals. That's been fundamentally true since we've had laws or criminals. But the, the, the balancing test that a lot of people, a lot of courts applied to determine whether gun control laws were constitutional, and for instance, like assault weapon ban or high-capacity magazine bans, uh, and, and, and many other gun control laws were looked at to say, well, they're constitutional because they only infringe the Second Amendment a little bit, uh, and they advance a compelling state interest. The Bruin court came out and said, oh, no, that's not the test. The test is text, history, and, 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 and tradition. What is the, what is the wording? What, what, is, what are the words of the constitutional protection? What do they say? What do they mean? Text. Secondly, history and tradition. How has that Second Amendment right been regulated or limited to some degree historically in the United States and upheld by the courts historically going all the way back to the passing of the Second Amendment? And to some degree, they even look back at the law predating 1791 when the Second Amendment was ratified to look at, at the, the laws and the, and the protections that the founders used to base our Bill of Rights upon. And text, history, and tradition is now the test. And it's not this balancing. Oh, yeah, you can infringe the Second Amendment a little bit here or there if there's this illusory allegation of a compelling state interest. That was brewing. That's what changed the game. And as soon as that case came down, and the case actually dealt with New York State's uh, handgun licensing scheme that said you had to have this special need, this compelling need to carry a handgun outside the home. And some bureaucrat would scratch his chin or her chin 
and decide whether or not you had a sufficient need to carry a handgun. And that was found to be unconstitutional in the Bruin case before the U.S. Supreme Court. And that was great for the seven or eight states, you know, Maryland and, and California and Hawaii and a few others, including New York, that had this May issue licensing scheme that was found to be unconstitutional. That was awesome for those states. And a lot of people said, okay, well, we're glad for this decision, and it's certainly pro-2A, but it's kind of limited to whether or not you live in one of those May issue states where it's discretionary whether they grant your license to you or not, as opposed to a shall issue licensing state like Indiana that we've had since 1980. And, and virtually like 42 other states had a shall issue system. And I said then, I said, no, 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 no. The, the impact of the Bruin case is not just about handgun licensing. It's that they changed the test. They defined the test that lower courts are now to use. And they threw out this balancing, this ridiculous balancing test they used before that allowed any court to say, well, if there's a compelling state interest, that doesn't so infringe the Second Amendment as to be unconstitutional. Because that's how all these draconian gun control laws were upheld before Bruin. And what's happened since then? Man, we've seen courts overturn the bump stock ban. Not all of them, some of them that have considered the issue. We've seen courts overturn in Illinois. We've seen courts overturn the assault weapon ban, the high-capacity magazine ban, based on Bruin. And what I'm going to get into after the break is the Fifth Circuit, and it, this was in March, uh, so it goes back just a little bit, but the Fifth Circuit, again, just applicable to the federal courts in Texas, Mississippi, and, and Alabama, but found that the, the federal statute that says that if you're subject to a domestic violence order of protection, and after the break I'll go into a little detail about what exactly that means, but if you're subject to a domestic violence order of protection, that the law that says not only do you have to comply with that order of protection, meaning you stay away from the, the person that's being protected, but also you lose your ability to lawfully possess firearms. The Fifth Circuit said that's unconstitutional under the Bruin test, that there's no historical support for the idea that where you haven't committed a crime, and that's the important point, you haven't committed a crime. There's just an order of protection preventing you from, from contacting someone, from stalking them. And certainly it protects you from hurting them. It says that specifically. And that's an important part of the statute, and we need these statutes. But the idea that you lose your gun rights when you haven't committed any crime, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals found that to be unconstitutional. And you can imagine the outcry from gun control groups and others. But let's get into why that is and what's our prediction going forward. And it also raises a separate issue, which is there are a lot of ways you can lose your gun rights that people are not aware of. I know this as part of my law practice. People call me all the time. I was just denied a license to carry, and I've never committed a felony. There's no reason I should have been denied 
a license to carry or I got denied a gun purchase. I'm not a felon. Why was I denied a gun purchase? Well, there's a lot of ways you can lose your gun rights that people are completely unaware of. And I cover this in a lot more detail in my gun, uh, my Essentials of Indiana Gun Law class that I pitch here on the show all the time. But I'm going to get into that to some degree, too, because people get surprised when they lose their gun rights in some cases. And I always want to make sure people understand exactly what the law is. That's part of what we do here on The Gun Guy Show. In the meantime, I want to take your calls and questions. Give us a call, 317-239-9393. I still think, Carl, tell me if I'm wrong. I think we're the only show on WIBC that takes calls throughout its entire two- or three-hour duration. I don't think anybody else takes calls like we do. I think no? Home and Garden does. Yeah, who does? Home and Garden in the morning. Oh, they don't count. <laughs> oh, you tell you that talk to about Pat Home Sullivan. and Garden. Oh, come on. <laughs> now, okay, all right. Maybe, maybe. Okay, all right. Well, we're one of few shows, and we're the only relevant show that takes calls the entire time. We're the only interesting show. Nah, I'm kidding. I, 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 I love Denny Smith in particular. Denny Smith is a great human being. I consider him a good friend. But in the meantime, we are a show, at least. That takes calls throughout its duration. So give us a call, 317 239 9393. This is Guy Relford on The Gun Guy Show on 93 WIBC. And welcome back. I'm Guy Relford on The Gun Guy Show on 93 WIBC. By the way, you can uh, watch us on YouTube, as I mentioned here at the top of the show. Just go to YouTube and search for 93 WIBC. It'll come right up. Uh, or. Tune in, as always, here. You can check the podcast, by the way. If you're listening to us live now, obviously, um, that's awesome. But if you miss it, you can go to the podcast. They're on iTunes and Omni and, I don't know, kind of all the usual places. And iHeart. Yeah, there you go. And iHeart. Um, but they're also on our page at uh, on WIBC. Go to WIBC, click on Shows, click on Gun Guy. They've got shows going back. Gosh, I don't know, Carl, probably a couple of years on there. Um, or I'm not sure about that. But or months and yeah, months. months at least. And so you can go back and check out those podcasts as well. A lot of people do that. In fact, sometimes I've had fill-in producers when um, our all-star producer Carl isn't here, and I've had stand-in producers, and um, they're, they're a little late uh, getting the podcast uh, up on the website or posted to the various platforms. And I start getting texts. I start getting, I start getting annoyed. Uh, messages on social media going, hey, man, I always listen to your podcast while I'm cutting the grass or shoveling the snow, uh, whatever is relevant to the time of year, or while I'm driving to the gun range or whatever. And where the hell's the podcast, man? And I always have to apologize. Go, hey, man, let me get on that. Uh, but it's usually up, I don't know, within an hour or two, Carl, uh, of the show every evening. By like 10. Oh, there you go. Um, so Carl's on it. Uh, he knows exactly what he's doing. I'm, 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 I'm actually lucky to have him as a producer. Uh, in the meantime, let's get back into the subject matter. So this Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals case came out. It, it actually, the ruling originally, I think, came out in February. And then the, the court actually kind of in an interesting move, uh, reissued its opinion and sort of clarified its opinion. And one concurring opinion uh, was added or lengthened to, to a dramatic degree. Uh, to make sure they that everybody knew understood or knew and understood what they're talking about, but what this is is it's an issue of whether if you're subject to a lot of people call these domestic violence orders of protection, and uh, there's a law that exists at the federal level, and we have the virtually identical law that we have a, a a mirror image law here in Indiana that also says if you have 
uh, or are the subject of a domestic violence order of protection. You can't own a gun. And the order of protection will say right in it that you can't possess a gun. And, and here's how the process works here in Indiana, because these are issued typically at the local level, the county level. And listen, I applied for and obtained a domestic violence order of protection on behalf of my mom, who's now 92 years old. But a few years ago, she had a guy who was, started out as an employee, and then, I don't know, I guess they had some kind of a relationship. I won't go into that. I'll protect my mom's privacy a little bit. But on behalf of my mom, I went and applied at the, in Marion County for a, a domestic violence order of protection. And here's how that system works. It's certainly here's how it works in Indiana and virtually every county. Is if somebody says, okay, um, I'm concerned about being the, the victim of domestic violence, you can go down and you can apply for it. And now you can actually do it online. And listen, is this a needed process? Yes. Yes, is it a needed, a needed process? Again, you're talking to a guy whose mother has been the victim of domestic violence. And, and, and so absolutely, I'm glad we have this system. You can apply now. You can go online in a lot of the uh, counties in Indiana. You can go online and apply for an order of protection. There's a form you fill out. And essentially, you have to establish there's a reason to believe that you've been the victim of stalking, harassment, or physical violence. Now, if you've been the victim of physical violence, that's also a crime called domestic battery. And someone who, who, who touches someone in a rude, angry, or insolent manner, that's the definition of a battery in Indiana. You touch someone in a rude, angry, or insolent manner. And that person is an intimate partner, a parent, a child of an intimate partner, and in, by intimate partner, I mean someone with whom you've been married, are married, have lived with, or had a child. And you simply touch them in a rude, angular, angry, or insolent manner, that's battery. And if it's committed against that group of people as a victim, that's domestic battery, and that's a crime. And, and it can be a misdemeanor if you don't use a deadly weapon and don't actually hurt them. If you hurt them or use a deadly weapon, it's a felony. And there's been a crime for a long time called domestic battery. And we also have a diff definition of different crimes called crimes of domestic violence, which is a whole different category. And I'll get into that in a little more detail. But a crime of domestic violence is not the specific crime of domestic battery. It can be simply battery or something like criminal confinement or intimidation. A whole host of other crimes. But if they're committed against an intimate partner, they're what's considered a crime of domestic violence. And there, there are laws at the state level and the federal level that say if you're, you're, you've been convicted of a crime of domestic violence, you can't possess a firearm. Even a misdemeanor can't possess a firearm. And it's crime of domestic violence. It's not the specific crime of domestic battery. And after the break, I'll get, I'll get into detail about how people get confused about this. And when I talk about this in my gun law class, in a lot more detail, a lot of people look at each other like, you've got to be kidding me, because it catches people by surprise. It catches lawyers, unfortunately, by surprise if they're not well-educated on our gun laws here in Indiana. 
But separately from being convicted of a crime of domestic violence, which makes you a prohibited possessor, which means you cannot possess a firearm, separately, if even if you haven't been convicted of any crime, if someone has successfully obtained a protective order against you that protects an intimate partner against harassment, stalking, or physical harm, even if you haven't been convicted of a crime, you've lost your gun rights for the duration of that protective order. That matter, that subject, was the issue of a recent Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals decision that's very interesting. It's got a lot of people very upset, a lot of people in the press, a lot of the gun control groups are going absolutely ballistic, no pun intended, over the, uh, over the ruling from the Fifth Circuit. But I'll get into that and what this means and how we can interpret this going forward when we come back. In the meantime, a couple of people have called in. Give us a call, 317-239-9393, 317-239-9393. We'll be right back. This is Guy Relford on The Gun Guy Show on 93 WIBC. Hey, thanks for checking out the podcast. We appreciate it. But make sure you join us live at WIBC.com to stream or at 93.1 FM in central Indiana for The Gun Guy Show every Saturday, 5 to 7. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. And welcome back. I'm Guy Relford on the Gun Guy Show on 93 WIBC. And we're talking about prohibited possessors. And a lot of times people have really uninformed and, frankly, downright incorrect interpretations of what does or doesn't make them a prohibited possessor. Because people say, People will message me, call me, text me, and say, well, I don't have any violent felonies, so I can carry a gun, right? Well, that doesn't answer the question. And we'll get into more about what all makes you a prohibitive possessor, but in the meantime, the uh, Fifth Circuit has ruled that, it, that, that the law that says if you have a domestic violence order of protection against you, and again, this is just the Fifth Circuit. It's one Circuit Court of Appeals in the federal system. Indiana's not in the Fifth Circuit. We're in the Seventh Circuit. Includes Indiana, Illinois, a couple other states. So we're in a completely different circuit. But at least one court has said that rule's unconstitutional. But it brings to bear, and it's an important discussion, all the different ways you can be hump, become a prohibitive possessor. even if you don't have a conviction, for instance, for a violent felony. A lot of people think that's the only way you lose your gun rights. That's completely wrong. There are myriad other ways. I have a list in my head. People call me. I got denied a gun purchase, and I've never been convicted of a crime or I've never been convicted of a violent felony. Why would I be denied a gun purchase or a license to carry? And I start going through the list. One of them is, have you had any domestic issues? Have you ever had a protective order issued against you? Well, yeah, but I was never convicted of a crime. Ah, that's what we'll go into. In the meantime, a couple of people have called, been on hold for a little while. Let's go to the phone lines. And we've got David. David, welcome to the Gun Guy Show. Yes. Now, my question is, Bings, I have the same first, last name, and middle initial, and some people have the same middle name as me, and one of those people 
our last two numbers on our Social Security are inverted. Yeah. Now, my thing is, since I did my time stint in the military and everything, I was wondering, what's the easiest, safest way for me to check to see if I can still legally have a gun, have a permit, without all this red flag stuff that I did? Was it three years I got out of the military, I tried, and they came up with a whole measure of, I've done this, that, and the other. I'm like, I wasn't even in Indiana. Yeah, no, I understand. You know what I would do? I would I would apply for your what's called voluntary appeal file and unique personal identification number, David. And let me tell you how that process works. If you're someone who has uh, been denied before, been delayed before, and and you just don't want to have that hap- happen again, you can apply for a unique personal identification number. And this is a process where the FBI does a background check on you and determines whether you can possess a gun or not. If they deny you, they'll tell you why they're denying you, and you can respond to that and say, oh, no, 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 you know, you're, you're denying me based on somebody else who's got a different Social Security number. And by the way, check our birth dates because the birth dates are different, and that ought to end it. Um, but there are other ways that you can establish that you're a different person than somebody else they're confusing you with. Once they decide you're right, they'll issue you a unique personal identification number, and they'll they'll establish this voluntary appeal file. The, the FBI, when you try to buy a gun, they're prohibited by law from maintaining a record on your purchase of that firearm, whether you were whether you were uh, given a proceed and you bought your gun or whether you were denied or delayed. The federal law says they can't keep a record on that. Now, there are a whole bunch of people out there listening to the radio right now rolling their eyes going, oh, yeah, like I believe the federal government complies with that law. I can't tell you whether they comply with it or not. I can just tell you it's the law. But what the voluntary appeal file means is you're giving the government permission to keep a file on you that says, oh, yeah, David applied for his unique personal identification number. We looked into his background. We established that he can buy a gun legally. We established he's not this other person with the same first middle and last name, but with different birth date and a similar social security number. And so we issued him as U-PIN. When you go in to buy a gun, when you fill out the 4473 form in the gun store, you fill out your name, you know, address, all that. And below that, there's a little ribbon across there where it says social security number optional. Then it says military ID optional. And then it says unique personal identification number optional. If you have one, you put your U-PIN in there, and then when it goes to the FBI, they see that U-PIN, they go, oh, wait, we've looked at this guy. They pull up your voluntary appeal file that you give them, you've given them permission to keep, and they go, yeah, we looked into David. He's good to go. Okay, I have a U-PIN. By the time I got out of college, I worked in bars in college. And for the, a lot of the time I worked in bars, my job was not only to to serve drinks behind the bar, but occasionally my job was to deal with people who, who didn't need to be in the bar anymore. And so I was the guy who, who got assigned the task of, of very nicely and politely uh, asking someone to please exit the premises. Uh, in the process of that, I picked up perhaps a couple of misdemeanors uh, for laying my hands on someone in a way that the authorities disagreed with. 
Okay. I mean, nothing, no felonies, nothing major. A couple were, were filed as felonies, but, but they were all reduced. So, okay, I had a couple of misdemeanors. Or very early on in my life, I, I'm still in college. I got those expunged, but expunged convictions still show up to law enforcement. And since one, at least one of them was filed as a felony, because there may have been a missing tooth involved, then, then I, I would get delayed all the time. I get, I get approved eventually for my gun purchases, but this is embarrassing. I mean, I'm the gun guy for crying out loud, and I go into a gun store where everybody knows me, and I'm talking to the guys, and I'm, you know, we're all talking about my show, or we're talking about my latest gun law class, and I'm, you know, having a great time, and I'm trying to buy a gun. And they're like, uh, guy, you've been delayed. And everybody like looks at me like, what? What? You can't buy a gun, bro? I mean, uh, to hell with that. So, and I, but I know I could legally buy a gun, so I, I applied for my U pen, and I got one. And so when I fill out my 4473, I put it up right on the form, and boom, it greases the skids, and I fly right on out of there with my firearm. So that's what I would strongly suggest to you, David. It's a great process. Now, uh, FBI, and this is the Nix team, the same people that look at your background when you're trying to buy a gun, they get it wrong a lot. I deal with Nix appeals far too often, and, and I... I met some of these people at the NRA annual meeting. I, I, I don't think they're bad people. Uh, there's just a lot of confusion on how the law works and whatnot, and they get it wrong a lot. So don't be surprised if you get denied the first time. You can appeal it. Uh, I, I help people with this issue all the time. I help them with those appeals, help them put the documentation together to approve that they're a lawful possessor, and we can get it turned around. But once you get that U-pin, man, it makes life a whole hell of a lot easier. In the meantime, we've come up on the three-quarter hour, so we're taking a break. We'll be right back. We've got other people on the phone line. Give us a call and join the discussion, 317-239-9393. This is Guy Relford on The Gun Guy Show on 93 WIBC. And welcome back. It's Guy Relford on The Gun Guy Show on 93 WIBC. We're glad you're with us. Whether you're uh, watching on YouTube, go to YouTube. Dot com search for 93 WIBC you'll see the gun guy show right there you can pull that right up uh, or you're on the air or you're listening online at wibc.com doesn't matter how you listen man we're just glad you're here in the meantime we we're talking about being a prohibited possessor we're going to get into a lot more detail on this uh, <clears throat> excuse me but uh, William has called in and uh, he's been on hold for a while let's go to the phone line William man what can I do for you how you doing gun guy good man um, I'm calling. I'm calling to find out uh, what the status of how it works. Um, convicted with a felon, a class D felony of battery. Okay. With in, with injury, even though there was no injury, but and uh, of a child under the age of 14. Um, I got a years year and a half probation. I. Um, Served work release, and uh, but no, didn't didn't have any other contingencies with it. It's 16 years old, and I got it expunged. My question is, am I still eligible to be able to apply to buy purchase a gun from Home Protection? Was the um, the the person under 14 years of age? Were they the child of an intimate partner? Like wife, living girlfriend. Yes. Okay. All right. 
then under federal law, then that's considered a crime of domestic violence. And and this gets really complicated. I don't know that we have time to go into all of this. I invite you to call my law office. But under federal law, um, that a crime of domestic violence uh, prohibits you from possessing a firearm. And under Indiana's expungement statute, um, it says that a conviction for a crime of domestic violence um, once it's expunged, the expungement does not restore your gun rights. There's a separate restoration process for that. Now, it gets more complicated because the Indiana crime of domestic violence definition does not include the child of an intimate partner. Only the federal one does. So that's why, again, we're going to get pretty deep in the weeds here for the, for the typical listener. Um, but call my law office, man. You can find it at relfordlaw.com. I can spell out exactly how this works. But I, I would be I would be very uh, uh, unsurprised if you tried to buy a gun and you got denied, even though the battery's been expunged, because it's considered a crime of domestic violence, given who the victim was, and that's going to change the rules to some degree. Uh, but there, there's some more ins and outs. It's a little more complicated than what I just laid it out uh, to be for purposes of radio. But contact my law office, man, and I'll, I'll spell it out to you. Um, and get, kind of tell you what your options are. Because, by the way, it's not something that, that's unfixable. There are ways to restore your rights, and uh, that's one of the things I, I really enjoy doing at my law practice. In the meantime, we're, we're kind of coming to the end here of this rather short session uh, at the top of the hour, but I want to talk about uh, when we come back in the second hour, this First Circuit, Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals decision, um, and it's Rahimi... Uh, versus U.S. Actually, formally, it's U.S. versus Rahimi. And Rahimi's a guy who was subject to a domestic violence order of protection. And he hadn't been convicted of a crime. Now, all the facts that were revealed in this litigation tells me that Rahimi, named Zaki Rahimi, is not a particularly good guy. And, 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 And apparently was violent on some occasions. That's an important fact. At the same time, he hadn't been vict- convicted of a crime that prohibited him from, uh, from owning or possessing or buying a firearm. And the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, again, this is just the Fifth Circuit, looked at the issue of whether he constitutionally should be prohibited from possessing a firearm and said, no, that law is unconstitutional. He should be able to possess a firearm. That's what we'll get into in a little more detail when we come back. Right now, we're taking a break. This is Guy Relford on The Gun Guy Show on 93 WIBC. Hey, thanks for checking out the podcast. We appreciate it, but make sure you join us live at WIBC.com to stream or at 93.1 FM in Central Indiana for The Gun Guy Show every Saturday, 5 to 7. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. And welcome back for hour number two of the Gun Guy Show here on 93 WIBC. And uh, we're going to get into this issue of prohibited possessors and one circuit court of appeals decision that says at least one part of federal law, one federal statute defining a prohibited possessor is unconstitutional under the new test as defined by the U.S. Supreme Court in the Bruin case coming out of New York. In the meantime, we've had a couple of people call the phone line. We always like to go to our uh, callers who have called in, and Buzz, our pal, is called. Buzz, welcome back to the Gun Guy Show. 
How you doing, Guy? Thanks for taking my call. Sure, man. Okay, I got to know, what else was attached to the bill that got signed for throwing stars? That, that couldn't <laughs> have been the only thing on there. Well, well, I'm shocked, Buzz. Why do you say that? Do you you think yep, that because you think that was no. that was like that was like you know, like a last minute addition to the budget bill, or they somebody just kind of sneaked through there? Yes, it had to have. <laughs> well, no, not at all, and 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 not for two reasons, my friend. And and thanks for calling. We always enjoy it when you call the Gun Guy Show. Uh, first of all, Indiana, unlike uh, Congress in Washington D.C has a pretty strict rule that amendments, you know, add-ons to a particular bill have to be germane to the bill. That means they have to relate to the same subject matter as the original bill. So these ridiculous uh, laws you see coming out of Washington where something's just sort of stuck on that has no relation whatsoever to the original bill, and a lot of times I'm convinced uh, are never even read or even uh, or most congressmen even and women um, even aware of them before they vote on them that happens in Washington that doesn't happen in Indiana uh, the amendments have to be germane they have to be of the same subject matter and if there's a question about that it goes to the rules committee and my experience has been they're pre- they're pretty much sticklers on that and 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 so that doesn't happen in Indiana and and I like that I mean for instance at the federal level I, whenever I'm teaching my gun law class I'll talk about the law that said that uh, starting in in 2010, that it was legal to have uh, a gun in a national park as long as it was legal in the state in which the uh, park is located for you to have that firearm. So you have a license to carry a handgun and you got a handgun and you're in some state that recognizes your license or some state that's constitutional carry. We now have 27 states. How about that, man? We're two states over the midpoint that have constitutional carry. But anyway, if it's legal for you to have that handgun in the state in which the national park is located, it's it's uh, legal to have the gun in the national park. Now, before you get too excited about that, there's still a law that says you can't have a gun in a federal facility. A federal facility is a building or part thereof where federal employees are regularly present in the performance of their work responsibilities. So you can have a gun in the national park, but you can't go in a building or part thereof where there are federal employees doing their job. Well, where's that? I don't know, the, the welcome center, the museum, <laughs> restrooms? <laughs> hey, who maintains the restrooms in the national park? I got I to gotta believe it's National Park Service employees, which makes it a federal facility. So that's kind of stupid. But my point in going through all that, although it's a little interesting part of the law, is that the citation for the law that makes it legal to have a, a gun in a national park that's only been in effect since 2010, that was the, the Credit Card Protection Act of 2009. <laughs> How stupid is that? I mean, it's great that somebody tagged a pro-2A bill that I am absolutely convinced President Obama had no idea he was signing when he signed it, and probably most Democrats in Congress had no idea they were voting for it either. If I had to guess, obviously I do not know. But 
that's how the federal system works, not in Indiana. So, no, the Throwing Star Bill, and for people who are not aware of this, I, I posted kind of a tongue-in-cheek post on social media here just last week, and this where this may be where, where Buzz saw it, that said, uh, and this is the tongue-in-cheek part, I said, and perhaps the greatest victory for Second Amendment rights in the history of the state of Indiana, Chinese throwing stars, quote-unquote, are no longer illegal in Indiana as of July 1st this year under a new bill passed in the General Assembly this year. And and a lot of people you know, responded. I had a ton of responses on social media, and people said, well, first of all, I had no idea that Chinese throwing stars, quote-unquote, were illegal to begin with. And people were saying, oh, man, we used to make these in shop class. And we, you know, and and I've I've got a, a drawer full of them, or I use them as uh, paperweights on my office desk. I mean, some of the responses I got were hilarious. But but whenever I've talked about uh, not only gun law but knife law, and I'll talk about you know, for instance, I think it was 2013 we legalized so-called automatic knives or or switchblades. So a, a a gun where it's it's spring loaded, you press a button or a lever and the blade opens automatically, those were illegal in Indiana until my recollection was 2013. And we we repealed that prohibition of so-called switchblades, which I still think was only passed after too many Indiana legislators saw West Side Story and said, ooh, there's got to be a law, right? And, uh, and it just says now it's only illegal if the knife... Um, expels the blade as a projectile. In other words, the blade separates from the handle and goes flying through the air on its own as a projectile. That's still illegal. But so-called automatic knives or switchblades, whatever you want to call them. And man, I, July 1st that year, I was uh, I was at uh, one of my favorite gun stores uh, buying my first automatic knife because I, I like them. And there's some really nice ones out there. I'm a big Microtech fan. And uh, But anyway... Um, but I always have to, when I'm talking about knife law, I'll always have to hesitate and say, hold on. So you can't have a knife that expels the blade as a projectile, and you can't have a Chinese throwing star. And I'm only saying Chinese. If you're listening to your radio going, why is he saying Chinese? I mean, you know, it sounds like sounds like President Trump's China, right? You know, I mean, why is he fixated? I mean, what if it was a Korean throwing star right? or a Japanese throwing star? Didn't the ninjas have these coming out of Japan? Come on, man. Um, that's the language of the statute, believe it or not. It called them Chinese throwing stars. And then it defined them uh, as a, you know, a, a weapon containing multiple blades uh, in different directions and tended primarily to be thrown or, I don't know, some kind of vague definition like that. But it called them <laughs> Chinese throwing stars, which I always found to be hilarious. And, when, and when, whenever I covered that point, people look at me like I was crazy. And people would say, who had the idea to make these illegal? And I said, I cannot tell you a legislator, but I'm convinced that somebody was sitting around having a whole bunch of cocktails watching a Bruce Lee movie in about 1968, if that's relevant to the Bruce Lee era, I hope it is. That's my recollection. And, and saw him, you know, winging these in every direction, you know, killing people with abandon with his Chinese throwing stars. And said, my gosh, there must be a law. <laughs> and, introduced, and called them Chinese throwing stars. That's what's funny about it. But one of our very pro-2A legislators, uh, who I have a lot of respect for, Jim Toms, uh, from down in the, the Poseyville, Evansville area, 
uh, looked at that. And he said, you know, this is kind of an Indiana embarrassment. Not only that we call them Chinese throwing stars, which makes no sense, uh, but also that we have this prohibition when, I'm sorry, when's the last time we, we had a significant problem with violence arising from this? So he filed it, its own bill. It was an independent bill to answer Buzz's question. And, uh, and yeah, it passed overwhelmingly, and it goes into, goes into effect. Um, the, the exception being you can't have one on school property. So if you think you're going to, uh, you know, go to your high school shop class and make them, nope, that's still a no-go. Uh, but uh, but they're legal otherwise, other than on school property. And But they changed the definition. They took the Chinese out of it and just called them throwing stars, um, which I'm sure was the right thing to do. But for some reason, I still find it um, uh, hilarious, uh, the whole subject. Uh, but, but frankly, I mean, since I thought it was somewhat – of a historical embarrassment to have that law on the books to begin with. I think it's kind of funny. In the meantime, we're at the quarter hour. Time to take a break. We've got three people on the phone uh, who have called in. And, we, hey, we can take more. 317-239-9393. Give us a call. Join the discussion. 317-239-9393. This is Guy Relford on The Gun Guy Show on 93 WIBC. And welcome back. I'm Guy Relford on the Gun Guy Show on 93 WIBC. We're happy you're with us. Whether you're uh, watching on YouTube, you go to YouTube.com, search on YouTube for 93 WIBC. It'll pop right up. It's also on 93 WIBC's Facebook page. Um, or if you're uh, listening on the radio uh, or online at WIBC.com, we're glad you're listening. And by the way, who, who knows? Maybe it's a day or two or three or ten from now, but you're listening on the podcast, that's awesome, and we're glad you're doing that as well. In the meantime, I'll tell you what, man, we still have caught. In fact, we've got somebody else calling in right now. Let's go back to the phone lines, and uh, Jerome has called in. Jerome, what, what can I do for you? Well, I got a question. So uh, say I buy a suppressor in Indiana, and I go through all the steps, and then I move to a state that allows suppressors. What do I do then? I mean, how do I get to keep it? You say go to a state that does not allow suppressors? So let's say Indiana. I go, I go to a class three dealer and I do all the steps and I get a suppressor, and then I move to a different state that allows suppressors. What do I have to do oh. then with my suppressor? Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, I got you. Um, yeah, all you got to do is notify uh, the the NFA branch of the ATF. And you can do this through what's called a Form 20. And uh, that, that you've changed the location. Now, if you're just temporarily going to be in a different state, like I've taken suppressors to other states as part of a training class, suppressors are not part of the, the requirement of NFA to notify ATF if you're even temporarily taking an NFA item to a different state. If you've got a short-barreled rifle, a machine gun, short-barreled shotgun, uh, you know, other NFA items, and you're going to cross state line, you have to file what's called a Form 20 and essentially get permission to take it across state lines, even temporarily. You're going to go to a training course. You go, hey, I'm going to gun site in, in uh, uh, Paulden, Arizona. I'm going to be there from this date to that date, and then I'm going to bring my NFA item home, say it's an SBR. Uh, suppressors don't have that requirement. You don't have to notify uh, ATF if you're only temporary, or excuse me, even if you're temporarily moving uh, or taking your suppressor into another state, if you're going to permanently change the location where the suppressor is going to be kept, um, whether it's owned by a trust, it's owned by you as an individual, you have to notify ATF of that change in address 
so they can update update what's called the uh, I think it's the NFRTR. Last time I looked, the their their database of registered uh, and approved NFA items. You have to notify them. I would do it in a form twenty, and just say I'm permanently moving to wherever. Um, the gun's legal there, but I'm advising ATF uh, NFA branch that I'm changing the location from what I registered originally. And I think Keith has a related question about suppressors. Uh, Keith, welcome to the Gun Guy Show. Hey, appreciate you entertaining my question. Yeah, same long, uh, same topic. Uh, a couple of years ago, I bought a AK pistol, put a brace on it, and when I took it out to zero, it, pretty good bark on it, and uh, motivated me to start shopping for su- suppressors. Uh-huh. I didn't know much about them, but, um, you know, I know that once I made the purchase, obviously the manufacturer was ready to ship it to me right away, but 14 months and $200 later, I finally got it. Um, I've, uh, you know, interested for that same reason on a couple other firearms, and I even went electronic last time, and I'm seven months in that way. So that's another issue. But uh, my my question is, is I, I think I understand why those items might end up being on the NFA originally. It's probably the same sentiment you expressed with the Chinese throwing stars, but it's there. And I just wonder, has it ever been challenged? And um, is it possible to challenge that as as being an NFA item? You know, it's an interesting question, Keith. Um, To my knowledge, and I I could be wrong on this because I've never gone and researched it, but to my knowledge, nobody's ever litigated the issue of whether silencers or suppressors. I say silencer. It's complete misnomer in the sense of it's, it's completely inaccurate. I mean, a suppressor doesn't silence anything. I went to Indie Arms today and shot a suppressed uh, SIG MPX 9mm and uh, shot, quite, shot it quite a bit, and it's a lot of fun. It doesn't silence anything. Um, it, 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 it takes the sound of a, a report of a, of a gunshot from somewhere around 160 decibels down to about 130, which is still fairly loud, can be hearing safe. But at any rate, that's what the federal statute calls them. It calls them silencers or firearm mufflers. Uh, those of us who use them uh, believe suppressors a lot more accurate term. But at any rate, they're, they're commonly used. The, the, the issue with, with challenging them under the NFA is that the NFA doesn't ban them, right? It just puts a condition on possession that you register it and pay the tax. If it was a complete ban, it would be, I think, easier to challenge. Now, there are states that ban suppressors, and I would love to see those cases run through the federal system and wind up up at the U.S. Supreme Court because they may take the next step and say they shouldn't even be part of the NFA. And the fact that they're regulated the same as machine guns. I mean, let's just think about that for a minute. Um, the fact that they're regulated the same way as a fully automatic firearm. In fact, I can own a Maw Deuce 50 caliber machine gun, fully automatic, and it's regulated the same way my 22 caliber suppressor is from my Ruger Mark III. I mean, how ridiculous is that? As, as, as restrictive as, as the United Kingdom is, as England is, on firearms, they're ridiculously restrictive. They actually require you to use suppressors when even hunting in some areas so that you're a good neighbor because you're making it hearing safe for you and other people around you to fire a gun. And I mean, it's an accessory that simply reduces the sound to still audible levels, again, it doesn't silence anything. Silencer was Hiram Percy Maxim, the inventor of the suppressor. 
the guy who patented the suppressor. That was his brand name. He marketed it as the silencer, capital S, because of how quiet it could make a firearm. He called the product, the actual item, a firearm muffler because the same guy, Hiram Percy Maxim, was a pioneer in inventing and, and improving fi- or, excuse me, automobile mufflers. The same guy, it's the same technology, a system of baffles, reduces temperature, reduces pressure, and therefore reduces sound. Same guy invented automobile mufflers, or at least refined them, but invented suppressors, called them firearm mufflers, because he also made automobile mufflers, and his brand name was the silencer. But to get back to your question, um, I'm not seeing anybody challenge that specifically. It's a tougher challenge to say the NFA is unconstitutional by regulating suppressors because it doesn't ban them completely, as I said before. Some of the states that ban them completely, I would love to see that challenged. Um, In the meantime, because they're certainly commonly used, even though regulated, I mean, I own multiple suppressors. Once you start shooting suppressed, you fall in love with it really fast. We legalized suppressors for hunting in, I don't know, 2015, I want to say. Might have been 2013 in Indiana. And hunters love it. You can hunt without hearing protection on. So you, you, you can hear what's around you, including whatever it is you're trying to hunt. You can hear other hunters that might be in the area. You can hear the people you're hunting with and at the same time take a safe uh, shot uh, that's hearing safe. That's a big deal. Um, so they're commonly used. I think they're protected by the Second Amendment. Um, but I would love to see a challenge. I think the challenge we'll see, Keith, is not going to be to the NFA necessarily. And it's a little silly. Just like I was talking about Chinese throwing stars, I swear some congressman in 1933, 1934 at the federal level was watching a, a movie about uh, John Dillinger um, or uh, Bugsy Malone or Al Capone where there were like uh, you know, n- you know, ninja gangster assassins you know, sneaking in places, uh, murdering people going, <gasps> We have, to, we have to regulate those just like we do the Tommy gun that was being used back then as well. Uh, I'd love to see that challenge, but it hasn't been done yet. I'd love to see it. We have several other people on hold. We're going to take a break here at the bottom of the hour. We come back, we'll go back to the phone lines. We'll also get back to this discussion of being a prohibited possessor and what this Fifth Circuit decision on the issue of someone subject to a domestic violence order of protection, what that really means. We'll be right back. This is Guy Relford on The Gun Guy Show on 93 WIBC. Hey, thanks for checking out the podcast. We appreciate it. But make sure you join us live at WIBC.com to stream or at 93.1 FM in central Indiana for The Gun Guy Show every Saturday, 5 to 7. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. And welcome back. I'm Guy Relford on the Gun Guy Show on 93 WIBC. I'll tell you what, we've had awesome callers so far in the show with some really good questions. It's generated some really good discussion. Uh, let's go to Dan, who's got a really interesting question. I'm gonna, I'm excited to talk about this. Dan, welcome to the Gun Guy Show. Hey, this is Don. Okay. Don, I'm so uh, sorry, brother. You know what? Producer I, Carl put it in exactly correctly. I just misread it, so that's my okay. bad, man. I, I'm sorry. I love, I love your show, and I, I – I really like that thing you had about the government put sliding things in the bills 
they give you an 8,000 page bill to read in 10 minutes. And it's what I call stool sample legislation. You have to pass it to see what's in it. But anyway, anyway my question is a bulletproof vest. I've got one with a trauma plate I used to wear on the job. Am I legally okay to wear it? Yeah, it's an armored vest. It's body armor. Right. Yeah, no, yep, yeah, you're legal. Um, well, I'll tell you exactly what the law is in Indiana. And this is actually, this is interesting, and this varies by state. In some states, they make it illegal to wear body armor. In fact, last week or maybe the week before, I had a caller that asked me about that. In Indiana, uh, yeah, you can wear body armor. I have I have both a, a plate carrier with ceramic level four plates, we call them, um, that can handle uh, up to the 308, uh, as well as 762, 556, whatnot. And, yeah, I have a set of those. And I've got um, some uh, soft armor that's down uh, level 3 or 3A, um, that's a little more comfortable to wear. It's a lot lighter, but it doesn't give you quite as much protection. Totally legal. Um, I had those in the car. I, I, uh, when I was coming downtown during the during the riots, man, during the as Hammer and Nigel call it, the summer of love, uh, there in in 2022, I guess it was 2020. Excuse me, 2020, um, when things got violent downtown. I didn't wear it down here, but I had it in the car, and it's you know it's one of those things. It's kind of like a gun, man. Better to have it and not need it than need it and not have it. Uh, but it's totally legal, uh, except a couple of exceptions. Um, in Indiana, using body armor while committing a crime is an additional charge. It actually will get you a Class D felony if you commit another crime while wearing body armor. So I'm sure that doesn't apply. Uh, but the other is if you have a prior felony conviction, you can't buy or wear, otherwise use, a bulletproof vest or body armor. Uh, so you don't have a felony conviction uh, and you're not committing a crime, you're good to go with body armor. And, and, and again, I, and I understand, I guess, the, the basis for those laws. Certainly committing a crime uh, while wearing body armor. You know, a lot of laws were passed uh, after the L.A. shootout. Man, I, that got so much attention, and it happened a while ago. Um, so if you're uh, much younger, uh, you may not uh, remember this. But, man, it was all on video. That was a scary part of it. Two guys heavily armored. I mean, helmets, uh, armor over their lower bodies, their legs, uh, multiple le levels of armor on their torsos, front and back on the sides, uh, held up a bank, and then leaving – uh, got cut off by police. Man, they pulled out, pulled out. My recollection is fully automatic AK-47s, and they had a hell of a shootout. These guys went through a bunch of magazines, and this thing was a roaming gunfight through the streets of L.A. for, I want to say, close to an hour. That may be my 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 old man memory uh, exaggerating things. I wouldn't be a bit surprised if I am. Um, but they got hit. I mean, you could see them. They're standing in the middle of the street, and they're firing off rounds. The cops were so outgunned. At one point, the cops actually broke into a sporting goods store and took AR-15s off the wall, off the rack in a sporting goods in a sporting goods store to go out and return fire against these guys because the cops were outgunned. And since then, it, it, it changed policy dramatically for a lot of police departments where they now have there's called patrol rifles. Man, an awful lot of cops anymore have an AR. Uh, in the trunk or in their vehicles as patrol rifles, and uh, and good for them because uh, we want them to be as armed 
certainly as well as the bad guys. Um, but they were well wearing all this armor, and a lot of states looked at that and said, well, we can't have bad guys wearing body armor. And they either banned it completely or they did what Indiana did. And I actually do not know. I should know this. I can look it up um, when Indiana passed this statute. But Indiana, I think, has a, a reasonable law on this issue, which is you simply can't commit a crime while wearing body armor. And if you do, it's another crime. And if you already have a felony conviction, meaning um, in the law, eyes of the law anyway, uh, you're a bad guy, then you can't possess uh, or buy uh, bulletproof vests in Indiana. Now, uh, every time I've bought body armor of whatever kind I've bought, I didn't have to go through a background check. So I'm not sure how that gets caught on the front end. I bought mine online. I mean, I bought mine from uh, sellers in other states and never had any issues whatsoever. Um, I think it probably, for practical reasons, is, would be more of a possession crime if you're found in possession of body armor and you have a felony conviction. Um, but thanks for your question. Let's go back to the phone lines. And uh, Robert has called in with uh, Nick's question. Robert, you there, buddy? Uh, yep, I'm here. Yep, what you got? I uh, recently had a uh, Nick's appeal sent uh, probably about uh, the last week or two of uh, March. And uh, did the appeal, and here in the last handful of days, I had uh, the, the you know confirmation that I'm a proper person. So, yep. um I, the the documentation I received, it, it, it kind of says, all right, go back to the, the licensed dealer, show them this, you know. Uh, and and the, the thing that has changed is the, the deal that was going on then, you know, I, I'm wondering if that documentation, let's say I go to another licensed dealer uh, for another another firearm purchase, if that is forever, if that makes sense. Yeah, if you can, like, show them that and say, hey, man, you know, I've already passed a Nick's appeal. I'm approved, so I can buy a gun at your store, too. Yeah, here, here's a bad news on that, Robert. It's a totally legitimate and reasonable question, um, and I'm sure a lot of people will be interested in this, but the answer is no. It's not good at any other store. As I mentioned earlier to another caller, the, the approval – or denial process, or there's an intermediate possibility, which is simply being delayed. Um, that's a one transaction issue only. And if you get denied on that transaction, or you get approved on that transaction, or you get denied and you appeal it, as you did successfully, that's good for that transaction. That allows you to go back to that same gun store where you got denied, show them that, and then they get notified directly by Nix. By the way, it, we're using that term if you're not familiar with it, that's the National Instant Criminal Background Check System. It was actually created as part of the Brady Bill in 1994 that where we said, okay, we're not going to have a waiting period on buying guns, but we're going to make you go through a background check immediately. And we want it to be as instant as we can make it. So we're going to have all these people at NICS as part of the FBI sitting around at, at computer terminals doing background checks and, and give you a response right away. That's why you get a, a proceed, that's an approval, or denial, or the intermediate possibility is delay, and then they have some number of days to further look at you if there's further investigation necessary. But that's good for that one transaction only. That's the answer to your question, Robert. Um, and, I, and I don't know if you heard the discussion with a previous caller, 
But if this is a recurrent issue, because I, I got delayed a bunch of times. I never got denied, but I was being delayed because of a couple of little blemishes uh, from my long-distant past. And uh, so I went and got a U-PIN and what's called a voluntary appeal file. Um, if you're concerned about this happening again, because you can't take that, that, that paperwork in and show it to a different gun store, because it's not the gun store that makes the decision. And NICS, by law, cannot keep a record on you to establish that you're okay to buy a gun unless you give them permission to. That's the U-PIN application, which actually creates what's called a VAF, which is voluntary appeal file, so that FBI keeps with your permission, because federal law otherwise prohibits it. So you're giving them permission to keep a file on you that says, yes, Robert's okay to buy a gun. That's good for any transaction down the road because you get this U-PIN, this unique personal identification number, that you can put on any subsequent 4473 form, which is the application you fill out when you're buying a gun. So I have my VAF on my phone. And I right there, I'm buying a gun, and I put it right on the 4473, and they look at my VAF, the appeal file they've established, and, yep, Guy Relford's okay to buy a gun. You're good to go. So, unfortunately, your your confirmation or the reversal of the denial you got from Nix is not good at any other gun store, but there's an avenue at least available to you uh, to get a U-PIN and avoid that issue in the future. Tell you, we're a little past the three-quarter hour. We'll come back for the last segment here of the Gun Guy Show on 93 WIBC. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. And welcome back for the last segment here of the Gun Guy Show on 93 WIBC. Now, I'll tell you what, we've had Dave call in, which I think, uh, with, I think, an interesting question. Let's go back to the phone lines here. And, and what is a bit of a short segment to end up, uh, or to wind up the Gun Guy Show. But, Dave, what do you got for us? Um, quick question. Is there a program um, or, or some type of uh, donated type of, uh, of fund uh, to provide a private citizen with a replacement or loaner firearm if they use a firearm in, uh, in justifiable means. So, say, uh, a police officer uh, discharges his weapon in the line of duty. Um, that, uh, that weapon becomes evidence in the investigation. Same thing with a uh, uh, justifiable uh, use of a firearm uh, by a civilian. Um, if they cooperate with law enforcement, that, uh, that weapon would therefore become uh, evidence. Is there a program to provide a citizen with a, with a loaner weapon? No, no, it's an interesting question, Dave. Um, I'm not aware of any kind of a formal program along those lines. Um, now, I, I know of specific instances where uh, private uh, gun shops or private individuals, I mean, for instance, when my client and now my friend, Eli Dickin, uh, saved countless lives in the Greenwood Park Mall by ending the threat from a mass shooter who had already, already killed three people, but in 15 seconds, Eli ended that threat, ended that mass shooting. Um, his gun was, was understandably, legally, taken into the possession of the Greenwood Police Department while they investigated that shooting. Um, while Greenwood had his gun, this goes directly to your question, um, again, there's no formal program, but I had gun shops, I had private individuals. I mean, from 
all parts of the country uh, calling me going, hey, man, uh, we don't want Eli to not have a gun while his gun's been taken um, until the investigation's over. You know, can, would, you know would, can we give him another gun? You know, and there was a gun shop even down um, in Seymour, Indiana, that actually uh, gifted a gun to Eli, uh, which is pretty damn awesome. But as far as a formal program, I'm not aware of any such thing. You know, I can see a group. Um, you know, I, I run the two-way project. Uh, we've not started anything like that. Uh, I could see a group uh, like the 2A Project or Second Amendment Foundation, um, you know, wanting to take that on. It's a little dicey because you'd have to decide, um, you know, what situations that's appropriate in it and what's not. In other words, are you going to investigate the crime uh, in order to decide whether that person uh, ought to receive another gun or not? Whole different question. I'll tell you what, the show really got consumed with callers. Uh, today, but I love that because uh, we had fabulous callers. We'll get back to the issue of prohibited possessors, including this domestic violence protective order issue in in future shows. In the meantime, that winds us up here for today. We hope you enjoyed it. Hope you come back next week. This is Guy Relford on the Gun Guy Show on 93 WIBC.